NowVeryBad.com presents Now Very Beast, Iron Maiden, The Next Ten Years. Host, Michael Ford Feeney. Hello again, and welcome back to Now Very Beast, Iron Maiden, The Next Ten Years. This is episode three, dealing with part three, Purgatory and Made in Japan. Iron 3 was released February 26th, 1990. Reached a UK album chart position of number 5. Now, that had to be based on the relative rarity of the Made in Japan EP. That's all I can think of with that, because 5 was the highest that these releases had gotten to so far, and I personally think it's about the weakest entry in the series. It's not the same as saying it isn't still very good. It is Maiden, after all. But uh, this was probably one of the very last ones I picked up. You know, when we were all sort of collectively uh, looking for these releases, I think we all sort of favored the later albums and the accompanying singles that would go along with those albums. And it was only sort of later that we would pick up on the lesser known singles from those first couple of records. And this was probably the last one that anybody would get uh, Purgatory and Made in Japan, which is made up of entirely live tunes that you already knew from the first couple records, and they're Paul Diano recordings at that, which I probably have already mentioned. Not everybody in my sort of group was uh, really a big Paul Diano booster. I really like Diano, and uh, my buddy John, he didn't care for him, wouldn't listen to those records at all. But uh, you know, whenever I was looking for bootlegs or rare recordings or imports, either record shows or in stores, I would, you know, the constant thread for me was that I was always looking for things I hadn't heard before. And if I'd never heard of it before, that was even better. Because the best thing about these singles for me is finding these B-sides, these great B-sides that are totally different than what's on the album. The more different, the better. You know, I'd always rather listen to a cover of a tune or a song that didn't make it than a live track, no matter how good the live track is. And that's true today, just as it was true then when I was first looking at these uh, first 10 years releases. You know, if I was lucky enough to find more than one in a store or something at the same time, and I had to pick, you know, which one I'm going to grab this week, I would look at the different tracks. And if it was a whole bunch of live stuff, I'm like, yeah, now I'm going to go with the other one because I wanted to find something different. I would go get these bootlegs and things specifically looking for songs I hadn't heard before. I didn't want to just get another version of a tune I was already familiar with. I wanted to hear something different. And particularly in the case of Maiden, because Maiden is famously a great live act, and they've documented their live shows really well. I mean, there's never enough, don't misunderstand. You're a serious Maiden fan, you always want more. You're not going to get sick of having live Maiden. But, you know, it's pretty well covered. It's not really that often that you have a tune where you say, I really wonder what that sounds like live. It's probably on a recording somewhere. But this first single, Purgatory, is backed with Genghis Khan. And so this is interesting because they are both album tracks. And the album had already been out for a bit at this point. 
So the seven inch Purgatory backed with Genghis Khan was released June 15th, 1981. And this is the first single that they had that did not crack the top 50. It got to 52. And I think that this was pretty easy to diagnose that you already had the album at this point. It was already out on the shelves. So there was really very little motivation to pick up this single. Not to mention that, you know, it really wasn't that inspired of a release. Purgatory is a great tune. You know, Purgatory is a really good example of the early Maiden style. It's probably a little bit better live uh, than it is on here, although that'd be kind of hard to imagine because they play this song at a totally breakneck pace, so I can't even imagine how fast they would play this live. I don't believe I've ever heard it live. And uh, originally the song was called Floating, and it was a lot slower. They played this few years before the recording, and uh, it's an interesting sound, actually, uh, if you're able to, to find that. This version may be just, just a hair too fast, actually. I have heard people who knew Maiden back in their club days say that they actually sort of preferred it at the slower pace. But, um, but I just love the energy. You can't get past it. You know, it's got so much going for it. I don't love the high-pitched screaming in the song, but I'll come back to that. Purgatory is kind of interesting because... If, if not unique, in that the second verse is the same as the first. You know, that old joke. And, I mean, this was pretty much modus operandi for Maiden at this point. Enough so that while I was writing up some different notes about what I wanted to talk about here, I said, just how many times did they do this in the first couple albums? And I came up with eight just on that first two records. On the first record, Prowler is even simpler than that. It's just a verse and a chorus repeated twice. And then Iron Maiden does the same thing. It's the, the title track, the song that they play at every single show. That time they do it three times. It's just one verse and a chorus, and they just do it three times. Remember Tomorrow and Charlotte the Harlot were a little more complicated. You know, they actually had a second verse. So they had the third verse, same as the first. And then when you get on to Killers, you're going with even weirder styles here. You know, that Another Life is verse and chorus repeated three times, just like in Iron Maiden or in Prowler. Uh, Innocent Exile... It's just a verse repeated twice. doesn't even have a bloody chorus. Killers is probably the most traditional. It's got three verses, and then the fourth is the same as the first. And Purgatory here. Two verses, pre-chorus, chorus, repeat. And, uh, you know, I guess you know, there's nothing really wrong with that. It's just sort of funny, particularly in the case of tunes like Iron Maiden, that they've been playing for 40 plus years, you'd think they would get really, really tired of just singing that one verse and chorus three times every single time they play it in their careers. But oh well, if it gets it done, I guess that's fine. But I think ultimately the reason I bring up this sort of pedantic point is that it sort of speaks to 
what these songs were. These are club tunes. They were no more written than they needed to be. You know, this band was massive in the clubs, and it's so obvious to see why. Hearing any of these tunes live, you'd feel like the luckiest person in the world to get an opportunity to see them with the energy, the complexity, and just the musicianship. And Paul Diano deserves all the credit in the world here. He makes these tunes work. You know, he was probably better with these tunes, probably even better in a club than Bruce was when, when Bruce was in Samson, and probably would have been better than Bruce would have been if he was fronting Maiden at that time. They probably were really, really impressive tracks. On the album, they're a little bit undercooked. You know, I'd mentioned Another Life. You know, that's a tune that starts off with this great drum part, then it goes into a solo immediately before words even come in. And, you know, there's this great energy, there's this great vibe, but, I mean, you know, it's not really a song. There's one set of lyrics, there's no chorus. Innocent Exile, which we'll hear when we flip over the, the record to listen to Made in Japan, it's the same kind of way. And there's a lot of these tunes, you know, particularly on Killers, where there really isn't any particular chorus to them. You know, they've got a hook, they have a refrain, but oftentimes the refrain is just a guitar part or just some screaming or, you know, sort of wordless melody. And, uh, I mean, it's just not as catchy. You know, they probably worked fantastic in the club, but when they were making the Killers album, this was the first time that they had a top-notch, world-class producer in Martin Birch. And I just don't get why he didn't work with them to you know, flesh these songs out a little bit more. Now, I know that these are all songs that they'd been playing in the clubs for all this time, and I'm quite certain that Steve Harris was very adamant that you know we record this exactly the way that we've been playing this song live. But you know, that's your job as a producer, is to say, Steve, you've you got a great beginning of a tune here. You know, there's a lot of great parts, but where the hell is the hook? Where's the chorus to it? Years ago, I was in uh, music school for a few years before they weaned all of us rock and roll players out and went back to teaching all the jazz and classical musicians who really could play their instruments. And uh, we had this industry insider who was a, a music business professor. And uh, this is at Lowell, UMass Lowell in Massachusetts. And uh, he told me the story about uh, the cars, you know, Boston band, the cars, that Mutlanga was going to do their album, Heartbeat City. And everything before that had been done by Roy Thomas Baker, I believe, Queen's producer. And uh, so the band heads over to England to go record the album. And he says, okay, great. Go send for your families and uh, get some long-term housing because you're not nearly ready to record. This is the beginning of an album. It's not everything that you're needing. And sometimes I think Maiden would have done well to have worked with Langa or someone like that. That brings us to uh, Genghis Khan, the B-side, which is my uh, nominee for the worst song ever to include as a B-side for a single. Not that it's the worst song, but it's just the worst choice. I don't understand why a song that was a completely serviceable instrumental 
uh, as a deep cut on the album was chosen as a B-side on a single. And I'm sure that that helped this to not crack the top 50. You know, um, in the commentary, and Nico's not a lot of people know that for this record, he talks about the fact that the song Genghis Khan was a last minute add-on, that they were short a song on the album. And so they just sort of put it in there. He's even mentioned that it was originally called Jenkins Barn. And, you know, it happens. I, I get it. But sometimes you've got to do that. You've got to slide a tune on there. Fine. But let's call it what it is. It's filler. So why would you put it on a B-side? I mean, I don't know why they put it on the album, but certainly why would they put it on a B-side? The tune reminds me nothing so much of my first band yeah, back in high school, we were this instrumental three-piece band. You know, eventually we added a singer and then John joined and it became sort of a more real band. But uh, at the beginning, it was just three of us playing these tunes. And I was really proud of the stuff that we wrote back then. And, you know, I'm proud of it now. It, we wrote some good songs, but... Uh, you know, looking back on it, when you think that uh, there are these high school bands that really engage the crowd and, you know, play catchy things and what that, that just wasn't what we were. You know, this was a series of riffs and sections you put together sort of workmanlike construction, you know, and the, you've got a song fit for other musicians to appreciate. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I love that, you know. But Maiden isn't Rush, you know, and it isn't playing to their strength to put something like this out on a single where there is a bit more of an expectation that you will be putting out something catchy that you're trying to sell records. You know, it's perfectly fine as a deep cut, although on Killers, actually, it's a bit over-egging the pudding because there's six songs on the first side of the record and two of them are instrumentals. That's an awful lot. But that's too much about Killers considering, you know, this is not an album review. So let's talk about Made in Japan. Made in Japan was a 12-inch single released uh, September 14th, 1981 and reached a position of 43. I had to go back and look at this. I was a little surprised that it actually was on the singles chart and on an album chart being essentially an EP. But the original release, the original uh, EP in the UK was only four songs. The version that went out in Japan and the version that went out in the States had a fifth song, Wrathchild, on there. But the original uh, sequencing for the European uh, edition of this was Running Free, Remember Tomorrow, and it's on the B-side, Killers and in Innocent Exile. So, I mean, the whole thing is, even with the fifth song on there, is just under 20 minutes. Without Wrathchild, it's just a hair over 16 minutes. So I guess that makes sense that it would still qualify as a single. Recorded May 23rd, 1981 in Japan, I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of the arena. The version on the first 10 years release includes the original UK version uh, that 
was released in Japan under the name Heavy Metal Army. And uh, so you have to go back to one of my only pieces of original Made in Vinyl. I have the, the Made in Japan US EP with the fifth track, if you want to hear Wrathchild on there. But uh, it's a great piece. It's a great time capsule. You know, it's a nice swan song for Diano. This would be the last you would hear of Diano singing for Maiden. And he really knocks it out of the park. It's a fantastic recording of these tunes and preserves what it was like to have Diano as the singer for Iron Maiden. The only real issue with it, and it's not particularly about this recording, is it's just that screaming business um, that uh, Diano gets into with some of these songs, some of these early club tunes. And Paul Diano does just not scream well. I mean, this is a guy, he's got this very narrow window in which he absolutely rules. He's a phenomenal talent, a force to be reckoned with, where his voice works fantastically. It's got power. It's got depth. And in the second he gets out of that lane, it's cringeworthy. It's awful to behold. And he does it like all over the records. You know, I don't know if it's because of what I mentioned before, that there's not enough lyrics in these tunes. I don't know if the songs were written for a scream to be in there. Instead of doing a chorus, you do some sort of sing-songy scream. But particularly in uh, Remember Tomorrow, both in this version and then later when they took the exact same version and overdubbed Bruce Dickinson's voice on it, which they put out on the next single, uh, it's just out of place. It actually takes over from where there should be lyrics. You know, the song Remember Tomorrow is always amazing to me that every time I hear it, I'm still surprised that when he sings that I shall return out of the fire is the word that you want to say there. But instead, he does this terrible scream thing. And it's just, I don't know, it's technically out of his range. I mean, he manages it. So you'd have to know more about the details of the physics of singing. But for me, it's just, it's out of his style. And I don't like when Bruce does it either. So unless you think I'm, I'm being hard on Paul Diano, I most certainly am not. Because I do, I love Diano. And I wouldn't want those first two records to be done with anyone else. Even when Bruce covers some of those songs, and I love his covers, but I still really just love the records that he gave us. And uh, the last thing I'm going to say about this is that the cover art. Uh, so both, both sides of this actually have an interesting story. The Made in Japan cover, which seems a little Spartan, a little simple. You know, it's got Eddie with a sword and more or less nothing going on in the background, really. And I think the reason for this is that the original cover had uh, Eddie cutting Paul Diano's head off. He <laughs> had, had removed his head, was holding it up in the air. You could see Diano's body lying there. And it was in pretty poor taste, but they didn't know why. The fact was that Diana was on his way out. And I guess Riggs must not have known that. 
Uh, so it would have been really tasteless to put out an album where you just chop the head off your former lead singer. So instead, they ended up with what is no better than it is. It, it, it's, it's nothing wrong that the Eddie's a cool Eddie, but it's just there's very little going on here. Purgatory is even funnier, though, because Purgatory, the, what Derek Riggs came up with for a concept and, and for a painting is what would later be the cover of Number of the Beast. It was so good that they didn't want to waste it on a single. They said, wow, that's a really, really good painting. That'll be the next one. So here, make something else for this single. And Riggs has talked for years about how uh, difficult Maiden was to work with in terms of time, uh, deadlines, and the kind of oversight. And it's the reason that he eventually just didn't want to have anything more to do with them. And I imagine that there must have been a time crunch here because the Purgatory cover is, it's interesting, it's sort of this hybrid devil Eddie, or Eddie's beneath the devil's skin or whatever, a little bit of foreshadowing or playing off the idea that was on the Number of the Beast cover. But, uh, but there's nothing, again, there's nothing going on in the background. So you do get the sense this must have been done with the clock running. Finally, the Listen with Nico part three. Not a lot of people know that. This is maybe what leads me to my sort of conclusion that this is my least favorite uh, of the entries in this series, because this one is really cringeworthy. It makes all these terrible jokes about how Japanese speak, and he, we have our first gay joke. Sadly, it's not going to be the last one that he makes. So yes, I know I'm recording this in 2021, and everyone's oversensitive or whatever you want to say here, but I got to tell you, in 1991, this didn't work any better. So take that for what it is. Enjoy it. Purgatory. Great song, made in Japan, fantastic live document. Don't let my nitpicking try and convince you otherwise. Part three is fantastic because it's Iron Maiden, man. Can't wait to get to the next episode, part four. We're into the Dickinson years and everything just starts coming up roses. Cheers. Cheers.